0: Welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. This is episode 3 of our six-part series on Adam Curtis's new series I Can't Get You Out of My Head. In this episode I'm joined by Andrea, Frankie, Oscar Frankie and Ross Jardine. This entire episode takes the format of me, Andrea and Oscar trying to summarise episode three to Ross, who hadn't managed to get round to watching it. We're talking about our normal themes of the limps of the archive and editorial oversight. I share some feedback I got from the BBC about some questions I asked them about fact-checking. There are links in the description of the podcast to this amazing video that Curtis opens his episode with of a woman driving through the California wildfires. I've also included a link to the film Watching the Pain of Others by Chloe Gallibert Lane. I've probably pronounced that wrong, sorry, Chloe. And also to another film that we, me and Andre, have seen, um, which is a desktop documentaries tutorial with the filmmaker Kevin B. Lee. But we open with Ross's incredible story of why he could not, Watch the Adam Curtis documentary in time for our podcast.
1: Shall I tell you a funny story whilst um, we're waiting for Andrea? So yesterday, I um, about five o'clock, before I'd spoken to you, Matt, I thought, oh, I'll just... Bex was on the phone to her mum and dad with... Louis and I thought oh, I'll just have a minute to myself because all weekend I just hadn't had it and I thought oh, I'll just do some t- like I'll tidy up one of my drawers and just get a bit of control <laughs> just a tiny bit of control right yeah. and I walked out of the bedroom and in the, in this moment of calmness my Annie cat had caught a mouse and had cornered it by the by the um, bathroom. So I shouted at the mouse, at the cat, because I knew she would pick it up in her mouth. And then if you shout aggressively enough, she'll run through the house and just out the house with the mouse. So I chased the cat. Down the stairs swearing quite a lot. Going, fucking cats, like that. Then but then Louis was at the bottom of the stairs (laughs) (laughs) with vex. And they just ran into each other. The mouse dropped and then ran into the um living room. And then I had to get the sofa out, turn the house upside down, trying to find the mouse. And then I caught it in a colander there was a hole about that big in the colander so it escaped again and i still (laughs) swearing and louis was crying and bex was and bex was crying right and then i caught i caught it and i took it outside and i was like bex get get front door and i was just shouting at everyone um and then bloody bex louis had his hand in the door and he got his finger trapped oh, in the door no. so he was so everyone was like just freaking out and i still have the mouse <laughs> like underneath the colander running about and I let it go and then when i was putting louis to bed i said i said to him what was the best bit of the weekend he was like when you called the mouse <laughs> i was like that was awful He was like, but it was so little and cute. That's the episode of the podcast.
0: (laughs) It's like that. I mean, this is—it's a definitely a good opening to the podcast, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I'm not going to say it again.
0: Well, we've recorded it now, so we can use that. Um, Hang on a minute. Okay, one second. I'm just going to get recording. So that's a pretty good explanation as to why you haven't watched this week's episode, Ross. I'm assuming yes, that is, kind yeah. of thing is what stopped you. <laughs> but you watched episode two, right? So you you you've watched a few of them.
1: I've, I've watched, watched, watched one it. and two.
0: Okay, so you've got a vague idea of the people involved, some of the characters that have been introduced, and obviously you took right. part in the first convo. So this episode is about money changes everything.
2: So smart. So smart.
0: So clever. Um and maybe we need to Explain this a little bit for Ross. Does anyone want to give a go at kind of roughly summarising the themes, at least, that were covered in this episode?
3: There's, like, a thing about climate change. Mm. Um, Nixon? A lot of Nixon?
0: Oh, yeah, a lot of Nixon. Oh, um, yeah, lots of Nixon.
2: Uh, a lot about paranoia. There's a lot of trains. Oh, yeah, I saw trains
0: tunnels. and tunnels. I was fascinated about that. That's true. It's yeah, and there's a lot of imagery. Of, yeah. It opens with a really beautiful video that was probably really famous. I'm assuming it was in the California wildfires. Uh, it's like phone footage of a, a, an American woman driving through, like on a, on a big road, but surrounded by like hellscape wildfire. And she's just going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then she goes through a tunnel and she's like, I don't want to be in the tunnel. I don't want to be in the tunnel. And she comes out and the whole sky is just red. So I thought that was really striking footage. And it obviously, w- last week we, we were talking quite a lot about the fact that all the footage from the BBC Archive, but this is not, this is from YouTube. Oh yeah,
3: and it had a credit, I think, at the bottom Yes, of the that's true.
0: So yeah, they have to credit things that aren't in the Archive, so there are a few credited bits of footage. The other thing that I thought was maybe a main theme was we get introduced to Arthur Sackler, who... Um, his background was in psychiatry perhaps or psychology, but he ended up advertising drugs and medicines to doctors. And he was one of the first people to market Valium to essentially GPs in America, you know, like doctors in America. And Curtis claims that GPs used this to combat the anxiety and fear and loneliness, emptiness that, that was kind of accumulating in the American suburbs. And right at the end... I mean, obviously, a lot of people might have recognised this already, but I didn't really think about the name Sackler until at the end he says. And of course, Sackler goes on to went on to develop Oxycontin. It's like the Sackler of the Sackler family that we know and love from uh, contemporary art sponsorship. Um, what else? Oh, there was a bit of space flight. I thought that bit was kind of interesting.
3: Oh yeah, um, it's like about the the guy on the anniversary space flight
2: and. He dies. That's like the whole. But there's this scene where, like, Yuri Gagarin is, t- is telling him, dude, everything's gonna fall apart because it's very badly constructed. <laughs> and, and then everything <laughs> falls apart because everything's badly
0: constructed. Yeah. This, I thought this was quite a, a piquant image. Adam Curtis says in his very simple storytelling style so, Vladimir Komarov is the astronaut. Yuri Gagarin, this very famous cosmonaut, checks the space shuttle and he's like, dude, this thing has got like at least 100 mistakes. There's no way this is going up in the air alone, coming back down safely again. And they take it up to whoever, you know, someone higher up in the party. And the party's like, you know, classic, late, that kind of bit of communism where they're like, yeah, unfortunately, we're definitely going to launch that shuttle. So you can either be a traitor or be on the shuttle. And Komarov says... According to Curtis, I didn't kind of check this story out. I'm sure it's true, but I just mean I didn't check the details. But Komarov says I'll go up, but only if if I die, then my remains sh- should be displayed in an open casket. Which I thought was like a real like condensation of Curtis's arguing about individualism versus the power of the individual in like grand ideologies. So yeah, he dies, this cosmonaut, and then we see this really. Quite crazy footage of like an open coffin with this just like shriveled, blackened. I don't. Even know, I guess it's all his remains just in a pile, and it's quite a powerful image. It's like you know, I can't remember who is looking at it. Some like up high up yeah, military people kind of observing. They're observe just it.
3: kind
2: of like,
0: hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, it didn't go so well.
2: <laughs> and then it ends with that, right? It ends with the spaceship fall. With the is it called a spaceship? The thing falling this guy for yeah. quite a long, long time It's like a long extended yeah a good
0: minute or so at the end isn't it oh and then the change from coal to oil as the dominant fossil fuel so that's the, where the train's coming because there's these amazing shots in the Appalachian um, coal fields of these huge trains just going on for miles and miles and miles and then the, he, again it's a kind of simplified narrative obviously but he's saying that in the coal fields, there was you know it just required so many people and so many bodies that you could get labor unions and then suddenly the there was this idea of them being able to control production or or bargain with um, capital, you know, labour versus capital, classic kind of stuff around that. But then his his narrative is that once you go to oil, once the coal fields are kind of dismantled and mechanised, and we move to an oil-based economy, that's diffused all over the world. It's kind of a networked system all over the Gulf, which has authoritarian kind of ability to crush any possibility of worker power. And so that's that's a kind of big, uh, or kind of little feature. And then something about monetarism as well, which I didn't quite understand. Something about coming off the gold standard um, under Nixon, which I don't really know the history. Does anyone know any history about gold standard?
1: I think it was, I don't know the history, but isn't it when you effectively, money stops becoming directly related to the amount of gold that you have? So it's like the beginning of fictitious
0: capital, isn't it?
2: So There's the conspiracy guy, sorry.
0: Oh yeah, go and explain the conspiracy guy, because that's actually, you'll remember this guy and that's a nice little narrative development.
2: So it's the conspiracy guy who was involved in, in writing for Playboy magazine and coming up with these conspiracies about the Illuminati and...
0: Kerry Thornley.
2: And then he kind of realises all this other stuff is happening and then he starts suspecting that he... That he... He was doing that because the CIA wanted him to do that it's a very weird turn of like him starting to say there's all this coincidence but all of them some of them meant something and some of them didn't and some of them are really weird anyway so I don't know he's a weird character I'm kind of interested to where that's going because he doesn't really add anything that's, like in terms of facts and stuff he just he just adds this mood of mm, confusion to like, mm. were meaning lies? I don't know, uh, yeah.
0: No, I think that's really, really interesting because that's the bit, the only bit that I really made a note of my own was, um, I can't remember his friend, but Kerry Thornley's friend, he has also by this point kind of fucked up. He wrote Kerry Thornley a letter and the note I wrote about that was that the letter displayed kind of epistemic despair, the idea of just not being able to know anything anymore and that being very different to the previous kind of excited embrace of almost like total chaos that they had in the 60s now the idea of not knowing something is linked to despair so instead of being linked to possibility and being able to control your destiny it's now linked to despair so that was what i thought was interesting i think you're totally right andre he's like a mood character he's not necessarily driving much but he mm. links everyone or he links us back to the development of paranoia as a style of politics and then suddenly paranoia as a kind of dominant mood of the american suburbs and then suddenly paranoia is like an all-consuming anxiety around what truth can be in the wake of nixon watergate the cia stuff all coming out
2: i think there's something interesting that to me he kind of emotes what curtis emotes which is uh, the kind of like sadness and resentment of the death of this kind of like western male subject who gets to access knowledge so there was this type of subject, which was, again, a like Western male, male, like, and they knew things, like, they could, knew, they could have access to knowledge. And that's kind of like the sadness. And I thought to me, this is what the series is becoming. It's like this sadness and resentment of not being, that, that, sub, that form of subjecthood is now being closed down forever. Uh, and I think it's quite different if you watch it from a perspective where you share that morning. Or where you mm. watch it from the perspective that I watch, which is just like just grow up, it has always been like <laughs> that for most people.
0: <laughs> Though I can, I, I definitely take that uh, point in in general, but I don't know if if Curtis or maybe that maybe that comes across in this series, but I don't know if Curtis shares that the feeling of sadness around it because I feel like and obviously this is still related to his subject position and his kind of position as an artist but I feel like he feels quite separate to it all like he he's and he's always seen himself as an observer of history rather than someone who has is really invested in like a particular version of um what it means to know something I had a kind of question that I've wondered if we could address there's this phrase called performance objective that I've just been introduced to. It's from like theatre and acting theory. Like what's your objective as a performer at any one time, right? So it's it's not like artistic intention. It's not like what you want to, you know, get across through the way you perform, but what relationship do you want to have with the audience at any one time? And I wondered, you've, you've maybe like defined quite interestingly like the this kind of performance objective on on the part of curtis's narrator if we think of that as a kind of construction but what what do you think curtis or his films what kind of viewer do they constitute who do they assume is watching like what kind of relationship do they want them to have with the artwork or with the films is it just the guy in the pub who wants everyone to nod along and buy him another pint
2: i want to i want to see what oscar and ross think because i feel like i just
0: hmm i think i think it's a, a truth seeker <laughs> I, okay. I think that's how... you do think he wants people to like get a revelatory feeling from watching his i work. think
1: so yeah i think it's probably uh, my most cynical is probably yeah young men of in their 20s looking for something mm. um i think that's who he's talking to is that who he wants to be talking to
0: yeah, that's the yeah. There's it's two different questions, aren't there? Yeah. Well,
1: it comes. Well, it's a question, isn't it, about why he uses the BBC for it as well. Mm. I think he he seems to enjoy being part of the BBC, and and that seems to be important to what to what they are. In the interviews that I've read with him, he very much sees him as like the sort of the odd bit of an institution causing trouble
0: so you think he sees himself as this or not himself but like the artworks as kind of troublemakers in the archive or something
1: yeah I think so I think it's like I can't remember I'm pausing because there's a there's a phrase for it I keep thinking of ghost in the machine or but it's not that
0: it's like like sand in the gears or something that kind of makes things a bit crunchy or like
1: yeah,
0: Less easy someone that
1: uses the same... Yeah,
0: yeah, bit of a rebel. OK, so uh, maybe that's, yeah, similar for the... He wants the viewers to think of themselves as that as well, like, we're going on this quest together through our collective history of the BBC archive.
1: I think so. I think he's definitely a leader. He mm, sees himself yeah. as a leader, as, like, leading a... Or a guide. I For me, he takes on the position of being a guide... He'll guide you through this
0: alternative history or something. Yeah, that's interesting because I think it's, well, it's not an alternative history. That's, I think, one of the things that I keep coming back to is that he is not discovering, and I I don't think he's claiming to discover, all of these things are things that all of the information he gives is on the Wikipedia pages for each of these things. Mm. So it's like he's your guide through history, giving you an alternative version of why those things are important or relevant Mm. or how they're connected. That's the kind of way I see it. What about you, Oscar? What What do you think Curtis sees himself as? Or what do you think he wants you to do when you're watching the film?
3: I think he sees himself as like a journalist who's cataloguing all of these things to come to his ultimate conclusion that, I don't know, JFK was killed by the CIA to encourage individualism <laughs> or something. Which I feel like in these episodes is what he's leading up to because that's all that the the conspiracy theory guy brings to the table that's like his whole thing uh,
0: so you think he's got a grand conspiracy that he wants to kind of unfurl uh okay yeah. that's interesting then what does that make us if we're watching it Are we does he think that we all believe what he's saying or do you think he doesn't care what we think you know like what's his relationship to us as viewers
3: I mean, I think he's trying to convince us.
0: Mm, okay. So straight up, like, he wants to make you believe what he already thinks is true. Okay. I like that. All right, Andrea, unleash. Sure, your go.
2: My interpretation is a bit different. I mm-hmm. think he feeds on the pleasure of like, creating these moments of epistemic unveiling. Like, there's there's a moment, there's like an incredible pleasure moment you have as a, as a viewer, as a reader of an object, when you think you understood something because... What was refracted to you was something that you already believed it was truth or something. And I think he's very good at doing that over and over to you. And I think there's a, there's a power that accumulates by people that do that. Um, and I think he enjoys that power a lot more than... Um, I think we don't talk a lot, or maybe I don't read a lot about examinations of the, the, kind of the power relations that are constructed by that. And what people get out of those things for their own vanity or ego or like um, the reflection of having followers. I was just reading, you know, about the new Jordan Peterson book, or I'm thinking about the Nexus conspiracy. I'm, getting, you know, what are, what does all these weird men, I will say. And again, I, it, it's quite specific. It's a specific yeah, type yeah, yeah. of subject again that is kind of like losing certain position in the world and it's creating these situations that. They're saying the most obvious things, but somehow they say it to people that read, read them and think, wow, this is exactly what I think. Yes. And then there's, there's a specific type of power relation that is created by that. That it's, I, I find it super interesting. Like I find it interesting what Ross was describing, you know, who are the people who, who are these kind of young truth seekers that watch these things and be like, wow, and are like super exciting about their own intelligence and how they actually still hold on the power of knowing in the world.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of truth in that. The one thing I did wonder was, I'm not going to be able to del- deliver this in a very succinct way, so I apologise in advance, but I did feel as though there is something reflexive in his method in which the viewer, you know why I was thinking this? I was thinking about Haroon Farooqi I've been thinking about Haroon Faruqi's narration quite a lot and I was thinking about Images of the World Inscriptions of War I think is the title anyway the narration is so smooth and slow and well paced and it's like I don't think hello. Haroon Farooqi is like really invested in the notion of, of their definitely being or not rational subjects or perfectly reasonable enlightened beings or whatever but For the temporary duration of his film, he helps construct you as the viewer as someone who is able to think in a linear, very methodical fashion and connect these ideas up. And that's, I think, what's so powerful and interesting about his films. And it definitely connects to what you're saying, Andrea. Like, what power does it offer the viewer? Like, what moments of insight does it offer? It's not necessarily about information, but it's about the flashes of thinking, I can do this, I can connect all these things together. Now, with Faruqi, it's very... Careful selection, very careful of images but also of associations. And you know, he's he's doing stuff this this film is about the Holocaust. There's no like light sub throwaway subject. What he says, like, not that it matters, but it could get him in a lot of trouble, or people could find it really distasteful. And he's making quite large leaps of imagination or short circuits. But part of the control that he exerts through the narration allows you to feel like you've got time to judge whether those things you agree with or you maybe you're going to come back to them later. Whereas I think Curtis, though his narration is quite straight ahead and plodding, there's so much covered by it with little declarative sentences that seem to cover, like, years or huge swathes of people that the, the, the viewer that he constitutes in each of these programmes is, like, swirling around and overwhelmed by the, like, amount of associations, bits of footage, you know, and... Like, his montage technique is so multiple. There's one moment where he's he's showing multiple bits of footage, so that's montage, but then he's also got really emotive music and then he's also got, like, a wind sound effect playing, right? So, like, the loneliness of the desert or whatever. Like, you've got three layers of, like, you've got archive footage that looks really, like, old and sad and it's all gone, that world is dead. You've got, like, really emotive electronic music and then you've got this wind. Like, as a viewer, you're really, like, battered in a way that with Farouki you're you really sat back with Farouki and you're kind of watching him and like nodding or going, oh, I don't understand that, but I'll come back to that later in my own head. And it like creates the su- it creates the subject that's watching the film. It's quite, a, that's just, that's kind of, that was my, my angle on it.
2: But I think that's super interesting because my feeling whenever, you know, what you're saying about, I mean, I love Farouki. I think he's just, I mean, to me, he and Curtis are completely like different. Uh,
0: well they are different places. but they use exactly the same techniques uh, and that's why they're comparable I yeah, think.
2: No, no but what I was going to say is that I totally get what you say about Faruki. like I watch Faruki's films and I'm still thinking about them and kind of like questioning and understanding well I, I watch Curtis films and it would be like 15 minutes later and i would be like Oscar where are we going to talk to Matt because I already don't remember anything
0: exactly, exactly I remember
2: feeling some stuff but I don't remember anything
0: I think he's kind of into that like and maybe that's a problem but in terms of aesthetics i think it is at least partly part of what he wants to do with his performance objective through the the techniques that he's using but that's just because that's that's my like bit of research at the moment so don't don't feel like we have to talk about that for ages were there any did it, did you guys have any just favorite little clips because there are a few bits that i just thought were so lovely
2: i mean i i said burn the suburbs like 10 different times during the thing which was quite fun
0: Burn the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, nothing good would ever come from the suburbs. <laughs> just like...
0: Well, I think you agree with Curtis there.
2: <laughs> 100%.
0: I thought that montage was really nice. There's a suburb. It opens and it just says, A suburb in California, 1968. And it's a montage of a woman smoking on her own and then people dancing in these kind of airless locations. I yeah, was I
3: was nice. unsure if that's all in one suburb or if those are... Different
2: suburbs in different years. The suburb is just one, ask Oscar. You, ask
0: you. Well, that's <laughs> um. that's it, isn't it? Because he'll. That's again. To, I know I've been talking about titles loads, but like sometimes the title is really descriptive of the exact footage. Whereas that, it's like it's making a point about how suburbs are the same wherever you go. You're exactly right. Those the footage Oscar must be from multiple places, and in fact, some of it doesn't even look like it's from any suburb at all. It looks like it could be from a city or anywhere. But yeah, he. This idea of the suburb or a suburb that just exists in the mind. I,
3: I think my personal favourite clip is the, um, the bit about the American base in oh. the Arctic and yeah. the premise that they built it to hide nuclear missiles and then they told everyone that they were doing air science there uh, and then they ended up doing real science there. Which I thought
0: was quite amusing. When they're holding the ice cores up, they they start drilling all these ice cores and realizing there were like various ice ages in the past that, you know, huge fluctuations in temperature. And all the ice cores are just so amazing. They're just these huge. Again, I thought there was something metaphorical there where they're like looking at this thing, which you can't really distinguish anything in because. Because we're not scientists and we are not analysing them, but also because the quality of the footage is is old, right? So it's just these like blocks, and they're like, yeah. And here you can see that this is where like everything died, like a hundred thousand years ago or whatever it was. Oh, and there's a really nice bit where they he just plays out a um a video of the Russian version of Let It Be. Did you remember that? That's so that?
2: weird. That, that that footage is so weird. I can't understand if it was a joke or like a real footage or like.
0: Well, uh, it was real, but it was like a kind of take a takeoff, wasn't it? There's lots of like eyebrow raising, and it's like a comedy show or something. And they do this like full orchestral version of Let It Be with like other words. It's it's good.
2: the The Russian, the Russian uh, writer was really weird as well. Like I didn't know him. That was the only bit that I to Wikipedia because I was like I don't understand
0: oh did you wiki him so what's his yeah. was it Limonov Limonov is his name is it yeah do you what, what, who is he then I don't I don't really know who he is
2: um, so he wrote this novel called I'm not going to remember the name properly sir. it's me Eddie it, exactly it was it, well, it was really funny because I think the way Curtis was framing it that like he was like this uh, I don't know like underground and super important thinker influential and then I think when I Google him all of it was like about, and I don't know, maybe it's the times, maybe it's like my algorithm, but they were all about how disgusting or horrible man he was uh so um yeah, I don't know it was it was uh, but i didn't I didn't know about him, and I, I don't really understand I was just interested again in this idea of like you know this m- man the uh, he yeah his girlfriend left him and he's just abandoned by all these rich people that adore him and but he's like a truth he's he's someone who sees the truth and and the truth is like communism is horrible capitalism is horrible everything you know i've read theology is horrible
0: no that's that's what he accused solzhenitsyn of thinking he thought that was stupid just to, to abandon ideology he thought was stupid but yeah he he was against communism and hated Russia. But then when he got to America, he also hated capitalism because his girlfriend left him for a hot photographer or something. <laughs> <laughs> but also just to... Uh, I think, Limonov, like, uh, Limonov ends up going back to Russia and in in, in in real life and in the film. And is basically... He's a fascist, like... I don't think Curtis is, will try and rehabilitate him. There's nothing to rehabilitate. But I but I thought it was interesting that he he tries to tell the story without mentioning the, f- with the end point, which is what he did with Michael X as well. Tried to kind of, for those people who had never heard of Michael X, kind of set him up so that you maybe go along as it's happening. But I don't know how much you can reconstruct history like that because... I don't know, there's an inevitability to the BBC Archive, right? The only reason they have footage of Michael Dufretis is because he became Michael X. And the only reason that people know about Edward Limonov is because he became a famous fascist who tried to start like a Bolshevik party in post-Soviet Russia.
2: But that was quite a choice, right? Because a lot of the images from him were from his state. They were not from the BBC Archives. Yeah. The Limonov oh, images true. were all from yeah. the state. So there's like a lot of intention in that choice. That yes. is one of the only non... BBC Archive intentions.
0: That is very true. So we'll see how that plays out and why that's been... That's obviously something he had to seek out that footage for. That's a really good point. Um, (laughs) Shall I read out... Shall I tell you about me trying to speak to the BBC? Yes. Okay. So I sent the BBC some questions just to their generic inquiries thing. I said something like, we're making a podcast about Adam Curtis, his new series, really like the show and we're ending up talking quite a lot about the way history is constructed and how that's related to the editorial process. I said, so we've got a few questions about how fact-checking works at BBC. Uh, Are Curtis's films fact-checked? If so, what triggered that process? A particular kind of film or particular stories or certain claims that he's making? If they are fact-checked, who does it? Uh, Is it in-house, freelance, or is it a centralised Is it a departmental thing or a centralised BBC fact-checking department? Number three, what is the fact-checking process? Is the process laid out in any public documents? Or is there any particular named process of fact-checking that you use? Um, And a related question, what is the editorial oversight for Curtis's work? He's obviously a rare example in the BBC of an in-house producer who works, as far as we know, mostly alone. And they said, wow, great, you love the series so much, Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but it's definitely on my watch list for the weekend. I think you should get in touch with BBC Film, um, which is the production team responsible for the series. So that is that is interesting to know. That is his department. So he's not in the news department. So he's not a journalist in an official capacity. And he's also not in, I don't know what you call it, but the documentary department for TV. So he's not subject to editorial oversight from the documentary department. he's BBC films are the people who make feature films, essentially, that are funded, part-funded by the BBC or produced as part of the BBC. So that's the fact-checking. I don't know. I'm sure they must produce other documentaries sometimes, but it's very different from being in the documentary oversight. So there was a bit of information, even though it was only glancing. Anyway, I forwarded it on to BBC Films, and they got back to me. Emma Hewitt, thanks, Emma, for getting back to me. Dear Matthew, it's great to hear you enjoyed the series. The BBC does not employ fact-checkers for its programmes. Rather, it has its own rigorous system of editorial compliance through which all programmes are checked and reviewed. Additionally, its legal department also reviews and checks BBC programmes. Adam Curtis is an employee of the BBC and all his programmes have been through this process. Thanks, Emma. That's it. (laughs) But you've you've got... You've got some insight, even if not much detail there. So they do not employ fact-checkers. That's never a process that happens at the BBC at all. They have editorial compliance, which is the stuff that you were talking about, Ross, in the charter, like rules for what they, I don't know, like how they make their programmes and what gets kind of flagged up. And then they have a legal team, which I assume... That's triggered by any complaints or perhaps just by Mm. a producer being like, oh, this looks a bit risky. Maybe we should get legal to check it over. They do not have fact checking. So whatever process Curtis has gone through, and I don't think he's probably ever making any claims that are problematic in terms of legal. He's He's not often making factual claims. His claims are often much more like about the relationship between things. But it is interesting to hear that, yeah, fact checking, we've been discussing it quite a lot and it's just not a thing that they do. Do you guys want me to reply to that email or do you think I should just leave it? I think we should put in
1: loads of freedom of information requests.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Could we do that? Like see, I mean, yeah. I'm not sure if so what would how would what would that process be? We'd just submit
1: it. So we do, we you'd have to choose what you ask for and then so you could ask for any any internal or external correspondence. So
2: we can ask that, for, like, any correspondence with the kind of, like, the editorial compliance yeah. board, for example? Seriously.
0: Yeah. That would be yeah. really cool, actually. Fuck. <laughs> I'd
2: be curious. I mean,
0: I'm not, like... I don't want Curtis to think we're some kind of horrific, <laughs> like, cancellation team out to get him or something. I don't... I still... I like his films, so I don't want him to... Like, <laughs> <laughs> i don't know really yeah okay that's interesting well maybe if we do have a particular thing that we wanted to look at we should definitely pursue that because it would just be interesting to see what the conversations are like around yeah, that process. i think it would yeah you could okay. get the
1: detail in that yeah definitely. exactly and that's
0: the interesting thing isn't it the kind of grain of the discussion between yeah. curtis and you know I don't know, someone, an executive producer at BBC Film or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think you'd need to, we'd need to sort of figure out exactly where we should aim the FOI.
0: Yeah, because that's the thing, right? If you're too general, they can refuse it on the grounds of it's too much stuff to to collect, right? Yeah, if it's too much, if it's over
1: a certain amount of hours. That's it. Work or cost to produce the information, they can reject it on that. So you'd need to, you you would need to aim aim it, but... But
0: would that that include things like emails between, you know, between their BBC email addresses? Yeah. Wow, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's good. Because it's (laughs) it's
1: all public, it's all public information. I think it would even, uh, strictly, it would include WhatsApp messages and...
0: Blimey. But just getting a flavour of the conversations that are going on, like, because... It, it would just be interesting to even know if he's sending stuff as he makes it or if he's yeah. just presenting them with, like, six hours of footage at the end. And they're just like, sure, Curtis, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we split it up into episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and Jiang uh, Ching, she got a comeuppance, didn't she, in the end? Oh, uh, yeah. That was sad. What happened to her, Oscar, do you want to say? Oh, uh,
3: yeah, she got, um, like, taken to a
2: prison, I think. She's like detained. Uh, don't look at me, I don't remember anything after we finish. <laughs> Just like. Um
0: Well she wants yeah, to take over when Mao dies. She doesn't, doesn't she? take
3: over.
0: And she does not. She is part of the gang of four and they are denounced by ooh, whoever became the leader after Mao. Deng Xiaoping. He puts. He mounts a successful kind of defamation campaign claiming they're decadent and that the Cultural Revolution was a failure. And he wins and they lose and she ends up in a prison with rubber walls because she keeps trying to kill herself by smashing her head against the concrete. But she's not dead, so she'll probably still be around next next week.
3: Yeah. I feel like um, the Liminoff thing was kind of like a dead end. I don't really understand the point of bringing it in. It. Bringing it in.
0: Like. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, I, I agree that it was it was like crazy to still have like more and more characters being brought in. But I wonder if he's got more to do with the next episode. You know, he's setting he's setting him up.
2: I think it's just interesting all these car you know, like these choices of characters that just come and try to do things and then are always kind of misguided and then burned uh, in like a very spectacular way. Like there's something because, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm to me it's like super confusing because you don't have in, in a way it's about you know there's no free will, there's no real collectivism, there's no possibility for the revolution, but there's also no possibility for the individual. Like I don't, it's it's I, I find him interesting. Like I don't see cho- choices. If that's what I mean, and and I think there's an anxiety on not having any choice, like not having any any escape while at the same time, sort of the the stuff that's coming back to ideology and you know co- and collectivism and being like an obsession with free will, or like the idea that that is something we used to have but now we don't have anymore. Or it was close to us somehow. I don't. Yeah, I'm just confused about all those things. But we're still in the middle, so I don't know. I
0: think maybe there's something reflective in. I mean, I think I think he always does this, but but it's it's a show about. The difference between collectivism and individualism and how individualism kind of takes over from collectivism. And all of the stories are very neat stories about individuals who embody entire ideologies or entire histories or represent their country's long history. You know, like Zhang Qing stands in for the story of China in the 20th century, whatever... Arthur Sackler stands in for all psychiatric care in the 20th century. You know, Limonov, maybe he stands in for something, you know, basically for post-Soviet Russia or something, you know, like... So there is a kind of interesting reflection in his themes and then the way he simplifies everything into single individuals who, like, carry the burden of, like, an entire history. But I don't know if that's on purpose or if that's just uh, his style anyway. Does this make any sense to you, Ross? Do you feel like you were there with us?
1: Well, I was listening selectively because I don't want to ruin the (laughs) the watch. (laughs) I mean, I'm surprised that he's introducing more characters (laughs) in episode three because it already feels like quite heavy (laughs) and with many unfinished strands. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, I think. On the Oscar, on the um, climate change stuff, was that around conspiracies and climate change denial
3: Um, I think it was more about realising climate change is a thing and a possibility like I think the first mm. scene uh, af- after the footage of the wildfires which would also be part of the climate change thing uh, is about like a atomic scientist who like m- makes a computer that um, every time he runs it, shows the Earth being destroyed. And it, like, predicts meteorological patterns. Uh, and he messes with it and, yeah. And he realises that maybe the Earth's climate isn't stable. And then I think it goes to, like, the suburbs bit.
0: Mm. I think you're right, Oscar. That's the key, is that it's about a shift from perceived stability to perceived instability though i i sympathize with your point of view andre there might be a melancholy for the belief that stability was ever really there i think the actual story is about you know like think about the cold war and the way nuclear scientists what kind of military people were using game theory which is i think something that curtis has looked at before so game theory It presumes a rational opponent who will always be trying to defeat you and therefore you can always kind of predict what they'll do because they'll always do what you would do if you were trying to defeat them. And then I suppose what he's, the the bit that I guess for for Curtis is the interesting revelatory moment is that the reason we really prove that our climate is very unstable is because we have a, well we, the US has a fake scientific base in the Arctic which is actually a cover for a real military installation, which is, you know, that's based on kind of game theory, but actually the fake stuff that they were just using to kind of model everything ends up proving the kind of objective instability of the climate. That's the kind of a uh, keystone, isn't it?
2: Maybe I'm wrong, but I remember that being as a sequence, not being like that the Arctic proved that, but it's like that the simulations on the computer were the ones that proved the level of complexity and entropy, um, and I thought, I thought at some point it was going to be, and if a butterfly flaps its wing, and, Even <laughs> and I wouldn't would have been surprised. That. It was just like no, coming. Come on. Um, but,
0: Slow motion footage of a butterfly <laughs> flapping its
2: wings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: um, well, burial plays,
2: but I think. Like maybe like the whole third episode is this kind of like a of complexity and entropy in like our thinking of the world. And what does that mean? And then in a sense, that's what the conspiracy guy gets in a crisis, right? Like what happens mm. when his very linear explanation of what was happening suddenly coincidences are around and he doesn't know how to deal with coincidence because we don't as humans know how to deal with chaos and messiness or something. I don't know.
0: I think it's tricky because i think some of what a lot of the actual history is laying out is is fairly pedestrian not in and that's not i, I don't mean mean that to be pejorative and i think as we said in the first episode maybe what people are coming to curse's films for is like some of the nuggets of footage that yeah like i'm not gonna spend my time watching archive footage until i see a really striking moment where there, all these suburban people are dancing together in this weird room and then set it to like a beautiful electronic soundtrack so, yeah, I think you're totally right. That's like, it's the kind of, in historical terms, it's pretty like straight down the line. This is a change in the way that we thought about the world, but it's just illustrated really nicely.
2: I just saw I just saw like this really good, I don't know if I sent it to you guys, but I can send it to you this week and you can put it on the podcast, but it is really good desktop documentary called Watching the Pain of Others. So desktop documentaries, the documentaries that you do filming your... Did you watch it, Matt? No, I
0: did. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. What's the guy's name? Sorry, I should put that up as well.
2: Oh, so the the kind of tutorial thing was Kevin Billy, but then The Pain of Others is a French uh, filmmaker. I don't remember her name, but we can put it on the. I didn't know her before. I got it from from that documentary. And she's like, she's watching this documentary, which these other documentaries make, which is called The Pain of Others. And it's about. People that have Magellan's, which is this kind of weird skin disease. And they all kind of like have all these YouTube accounts to talk about it. So it's like a a kind of whole community of people that have this illness, which manifests by being like fibers that come out of your skin, among other things. So she's watching, she watches this documentary on, on the desktop, and then she started investigating, and she found out that actually she starts having all this empathy. So she starts feeling these things in her skin. And she's talking about how, you know, you keep watching these people finding things in their skin and not knowing how to deal about it. And then you kind of like slowly start getting confused <laughs> if you're having that or if that's a coincidence or if you're just like projecting or if you're projecting means that their um, disease is not real. Mm. And that makes you a bad person because, you know, all of these are women who are not accepted in like the... Medical establishment, and then she kind of like goes to investigate these women, and all these women are kind of like very weird and they're all flat earthers and anti vaxxers, and they're like, you know, super. And then she's kind of fascinated because why didn't the documentary filmmaker no, include that? Like, if, if, you could, if you had seen all these women in the documentary, you wouldn't have that empathy. And she's like, oh no, because that's why she's interested. She's interesting that the documentary is not about Magellan's, the documentary is about our relationship. We're watching pain and illness on the screen and how it messes with our emotions and perceptions and kind of understandings of reality. And I was like, oh, maybe that's what Curtis mm. is doing. I just think maybe she's better than Curtis is doing. <laughs>
0: but uh, um, Annie right, Lane, I think, is the name, by the way, of the director.
2: No, that's the director of The Pain of Others. Oh, so this
0: sorry. is so it's watching, watching the pain, the pain of, of others. others. Yeah. Oh, Chloe Gallibert Lane.
2: Yes, it's amazing. It's
0: bad.
2: absolutely worth watching. But um, Sorry, that was like mean to Curtis. But what I mean is that I think there's something really interesting because this is also like looking at contemporary film and you know, in the internet and stuff that you watch in your laptops. Like, we watch Curtis in our laptops, which is like a very close
0: yeah, relationship
2: true. to this thing that is about, again, like epistemology in my laptop, which is what I used to like you know, write and do wiki. Mm. research and stuff like that and also just having really close to my face all this kind of like emotional music things i think there's something i think there's something there
0: defo yeah i think that's super interesting okay any any final thoughts before we close out you guys how excited on a scale of one to ten are you about watching the next episode
3: um for me things got slightly more interesting after mm. the previous two episodes ah. I think it's starting to pick up oh cool just like I think more things are happening uh, he's kind of starting to finish the the lines from the first and second episodes and he's starting to make conclusions which is the interesting part of- yeah
2: I think that's something I was thinking this week is like I think we're doing this wrong like all the people that I've talk to that actually like it I've binged it they have seen the six hours and I think that's the right way to do it because maybe like all these things that were like funny annoying because it disconnected just like go through you or something
0: yeah I think that's a good point but I also think that this is the first series he's made for like several years in a way we're watching them partly in the in the spirit of how they're conceived I totally see what you mean. Like, you might forgive him a lot more if you just watched it all in one go, rather than <laughs> subjecting yourself to it every week. I don't know. Maybe you would
3: just have less time to realize that you didn't really understand
2: any of that. Yeah, but maybe that's yeah. the idea, right? Because you're supposed to feel them instead of thinking yeah. too much about it.
0: So, I also think we'd like. I wish I listened to um Ralph and oh I think it's his friend Ollie do a a film review podcast called the Moob Tube, and he said oh I've we just like watched. Curtis's documentary and then theirs is like an hour long and they do the whole six episodes and they basically just breeze through the topics and they like discuss a few techniques and then it's over whereas I'm also subjecting us to the rigmarole of like discussing every single episode so I'm um, yeah we're subject we're doubly subjecting ourselves
2: It's a covered experiment I only get to see you guys <laughs> when we do this so.
0: Yeah by the time we're finished hopefully we can meet up and have a drink rather than watch documentaries on our own that <laughs> talk about them on Zoom. What about you, Ross? Are you excited to watch this episode now you've had us had explain I, it to you?
1: I'm not necessarily more excited. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I am excited. I'm excited to see the fourth one. Right. I'm up for
0: it. I'm a fan. Okay, cool. And what about you, Andrea?
2: I would not be watching this if it wasn't for the fact that I get to talk to you guys about it. Like To me, this is this is a fun bit, but... Uh, I just watched like I just watched lots of documentaries so this week I yeah, watched uh, okay. Thin Blue Line I watched like the the video on real time you know, like the kind of like two hour oh, thing the,
0: on Saturday night Yeah Yes So Fucking hell I just
2: watched so much more interesting things than this to me but
0: Yeah
2: I like it. I enjoy chatting guys about it and being the official complainer <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks so much to Andrea, to Oscar and to Ross for recording with me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I'll see you again soon for the next one.